I want to invite you to the Leading Saints 2020 Church History Tour. We will be traveling from the Hill Cumorra all the way to Kansas City, Missouri, and hitting most of the church historical sites in between. A nine-day tour from July 16th to the 24th. Plus, we will be attending one of the last-ever Hill Cumorra pageant performances. My wife and I will be there to experience the tour with you as we visit places like the Hill Cumorra, the Sacred Grove, Niagara Falls, the Priesthood Restoration Site, Kirtland Temple, Newell K. Whitney Store, Carthage Jail, Nauvoo Temple, Adamondiamon, Independence, Missouri, Liberty Jail, and so much more. To grab one of the remaining 35 seats, visit leadingsaints.org tour. All seats will be filled in the next six weeks, so jump at this opportunity. Again, visit leadingsaints.org tour for all the details. Is your head still spinning about General Conference? Wasn't that phenomenal? Fantastic announcements and policy changes and new approaches. I mean, I'm excited. I know you are. This is the Leading Saints podcast. Uh, if you are new to Leading Saints, I welcome you. This is a podcast where we talk all things leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint because we strive to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, I was going to let you know that I got a new calling in my ward, Young Men's Secretary. Wah, 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 wah. All right. So I'll probably still be involved in the Young Men's in some capacity, I would imagine, but I was really excited to be in the Young Men's <laughs> Uh, presidency. They sustained me the Sunday before general conference. And uh, there I was sitting in my living room, finding out I had just been released without even a chance of starting. Nonetheless, I'm sure it'll be awesome, whatever direction my calling leads me. So uh, you may not know this, but on October 13th, it is Clergy Appreciation Day. And this is, uh, I'm going to release this episode around that time. Now, what is Clergy Appreciation Day? Well, I don't know exactly. I mean, it's a day that we thank the clergy in our life. And uh, maybe it's one made-up holiday by Hallmark. I don't know. But it's a cool one, nonetheless. Nonetheless, because it's definitely an opportunity for us to step back and say thank you to the clergy in our life, especially those lay leaders that we interact with week to week. So I thought it would be cool to step outside of the Latter-day Saint bubble and context and reach out to a local clergyman in my area that has had quite an impact on this Latter-day Saint culture as a Baptist, and that is Reverend Franz Davis. He has been the full-time pastor of the historic Calvary Missionary Baptist Church of Salt Lake City since 1974. That's 45 years he's been serving and giving his all, really has had an impact in the community. If you were to ask most people living in Salt Lake City to name a clergyman outside of uh, that it isn't a Latter-day Saint, they would most likely say Franz Davis. Uh, he has been an incredible pastor for that church and after 45 years retiring. And uh, in a roundabout way, I had the opportunity to connect with him, ask him for an interview. So I thought it'd be interesting to find out how a pastor, especially the pastor of the Calvary Missionary Baptist Church, leads. And so well, I did just that. I was able to connect with him. I actually attended one of his services a week or two before uh, interviewing him, had a wonderful, uplifting experience there. And it was fun to sit down with Reverend Franz Davis. And in preparing for this interview, I wasn't exactly sure what questions I should ask him. I mainly just want to learn more about just his experience serving in uh, serving a, a church, right? Serving as a leader of a church. And so we delve into that. But really, it was interesting just to find how his experience has been in a very Latter-day Saint-heavy community, being a Baptist pastor in that community and, and what we should be aware of. And, and I learned a lot 
from him from his unique perspective. And I think not that this is a perfect interview, but I hope it, it stands as a model of maybe something you could do as a local leader in your area for uh, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Maybe take a moment to just reach out to the Baptist minister or the Catholic bishop or whomever it is in your area and say, hey, can we go to lunch or would you mind if I stop by or hey, can I attend one of your services and just get familiar with what they're doing and it would go a long way. So I think you'll, uh, I hope this interview will uh, benefit in maybe hearing a former Latter-day Saint bishop and a current uh, Baptist minister sit down and talk about their religious experience. And it was beneficial for my life. I know that. So here is my interview with Reverend Franz Davis. Here we are in uh, downtown Salt Lake City with Pastor Franz A. Davis, who is the pastor of the uh, Calgary, Calvary, Calvary, sorry. Calvary. Calvary. Calgary is, is in Canada, Canada and is a military unit. But nice. Calvary is uh, the name for the cross. That's right. Where Jesus was crucified. Nice. Now, you've been the pastor here for, for is it, did you say 45 years? 45 plus years I've been the pastor here at the Calvary Church in downtown Salt Lake. And you were born and raised in Georgia, is that right? Born and reared in Georgia, grew up there, went through high school, left to go to college. Uh, once I was in college, I uh, then uh, participated in the marches with Dr. Martin Luther King wow. Jr. And then uh, left college and moved to Florida to raise money for the next year's school. But by that time, the military was after me, so I joined the military and was in the Air Force for four years during the Vietnam years. And then once discharged, and I went back to school, to multiple schools, graduated and was recruited by the University of Utah to come to Salt Lake City as a teaching fellow in the communication department. Nice. So it, there was no other connection other than that opportunity to come to Utah. No other op opportunities, no other connection. Uh, didn't know about the church, uh, but the church became available a year later. Nice. So going back to your time uh, with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., how did that come to be? Did you just get word that some marches were happening, or how did you end up uh, I was a student effort? at Tuskegee, uh, which is a college that was started by Booger T. Washington. Hmm. That college uh, had activists that were on campus, and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was coming to town to help the voting rights people to ensure that they could register and vote. And the students were a part of that. And so I was one of those activist students. Yeah. And in in that moment, did, you, did it feel like, I mean, history was being made or? We had uh, no real sense of that as students. Uh, we were just uh, trying to make a change and do the things that we thought was right on behalf of the people who were residents of the state of Alabama. Yeah. Uh, no sense of history. Looking back now, we can see how it was a history-making yeah. process and time, but uh, at the time, we had no sense of that. And did you ever have opportunity to meet and converse with Dr. Oh, King? Yes, I met Dr. King, interviewed him, uh, marched with him, talked with him one-on-one, -on -one, uh, spent a lot of time uh, getting to know him as a person. Don't yeah. think he'd know me if he were alive today, but uh, or remember me, but I would certainly remember him. Yeah. 
how has that his example and maybe some of those personal interactions really uh, influenced you in your time as in leadership? Well, I have three main mentors who've influenced me as a leader. Number one, my father. Number two is Dr. Howard Thurman, who was a teacher uh, for Dr. Martin Luther King, and then Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. All three of them uh, had a real conviction that it's not enough to just believe something, but that you have to put feet and hands to whatever you believe. You have to make it a reality. And so that was the influence that I saw in all three of those people, my own mm -hmm. father, Dr. Thurman, and uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. were the uh, people that their approach was uh, nonviolent. Uh, all of them believed that the best way to get the best results with the minimum amount of harm was to do it with nonviolent civil disobedience. Yeah, and so in your in your ministry as as a pastor, how is that uh, translator? How, how have you maybe taken action in some of those efforts? Well, the book for all three of my mentors, the primary book was the Bible. Hmm. And the Bible has certain principles, love your neighbors, uh, do right by those that are among you, treat others the way you want to be treated, and uh, love instead of hate. And so with the Bible as our guide, we then thought it's important to ensure that people are treated right, treated right not just by those who were part of our particular congregations, but also the people of the community. And thus, the laws were written in a way in those days, those 1940s, 50s, from 1896, really, or really from the beginning of our country, the laws were written so that one set of people was treated one way, another set of people were treated a different way, and the difference in that treatment had to do with skin color and place of origin. Mm. And so as mentors, they believed that we needed to uh, get those laws changed. In fact, Dr. King writes in his book, I forgot the name of his book, how long, I can't remember it's, the name. It'll, it'll come. <laughs> but in, in his book, he writes about how it's appropriate even to break laws as long as you're willing to suffer the consequences if you believe those laws are wrong. Mm. Yeah, that's inspiring. That's Absolutely. inspiring. So you've, you've continued that, that continued work. that, and I've done it. I did it in Alabama. I did it in uh, California when I was a student there. And then when I came to Utah, continued to try to make uh, this community a better place for all of the people who live in this uh, area. Yeah, and I think many would uh, confirm that you've definitely done that, so that's that's awesome. It's been our goal. So uh, when, did, uh, when did the first thought come in your mind that you maybe wanted to become a pastor? That started uh, when I was about 18 years old. I was searching for what I ought to do. I was a college dropout at the time and trying to find my a role and a meaningful role and concluded that God was calling me to be a leader and one of the people to uh, lead one of his churches in our community. And what's the process look like from that point to actually? Well, the process is that you announce that uh, you believe God has called you. The local congregation then 
somebody confirms that they believe that you've been called, hmm. uh, then the first major step is to be licensed as a preacher to go out and prove that you've been called. And then the last step is to be ordained. Once ordained, uh, then one is eligible to become a pastor of a church. And in our case, our churches are congregational, so the local congregation that's standing in need of a pastor will put out the word that they're looking for a pastor. They will consider the candidates who apply and uh, those who may not apply, like me, and then they'll uh, take a congregational vote, and that vote will decide whether you are extended a call to become a pastor or not. Hmm. This congregation in the 1972-73 needed a pastor and decided that they would uh, search the country and see if they could find uh, the pastor that they wanted. I was already here as a qualified minister, but uh, I was not one of those that was interested, and the congregation was not considering me. Yeah. However, at the end of their search, uh, one of the members asked me if I would accept a call from the congregation, and I agreed to accept the call and have served since then, 1974 until now. Yeah. So I, I appreciate the fact that uh, you mentioned it starts with a call from God, right? That call from God. It, you God. can't just look at it and think, oh, this looks like an interesting line of work. No, Maybe it's I'll... not just a job. It's yeah. not just a career, but it's rather it's a call from God to uh, be a pastor and a minister, a hmm. leader of one of the congregations. Nice. So uh, when, when that invitation, that call from the this congregation came, was that did it come as a surprise then to you? Well, it came... Uh, Came in part as a surprise, but in part not as a surprise. I was already here and uh, qualified, some people right? qualified, and some people had already talked to me about whether I would uh, be willing to accept the call or not. So I went about my business, and they called me in my absence. Yeah. And what do you remember from like starting that was, did you feel nervous? Did, was there a wait? I mean, uh, or, or were you excited to get started? I was excited to get started, excited because I had been carrying on in the absence of a pastor for some time, uh, several months. And so now it was exciting to be the person who officially is now the call to be the pastor of the church. Nice. I wasn't very nervous uh, I assumed that God had prepared me, and had allowed me to get the academic training, the on-the-job training, to be ready when the time came. It's what my father called, when the ground swells, you have to be ready to step in and do what needs to be done. Yeah. That's what happened to Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King graduated from school and took a job. And then one day, Mrs. Rosa Parks got on the bus and refused to give up her seat. And so they drafted Dr. King to become the leader of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And from there, the rest is history. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So um, and now you're in, 45 years later, you're in that, that process again of finding a new pastor. And, and so what does that process look like from this side of, of things? Uh, uh, the process for finding a new pastor is that, first of all, a committee of leaders from the congregation will come together. They will decide what for the future they believe this church needs and wants. 
And then they put the word out that they're looking for a pastor. People apply. And uh, once they apply, the committee then screens the applicants, the paper applicants, cations. Uh, once they've screened them and narrowed the number down to a manageable number, they then do te telephone interviews. And uh, later on, they do uh, video and bring the finalist in, much like a college president. Hmm. They'll bring the finalist in and say to them, uh, talk to the congregation, convinced the congregation now that you are the person that God has sent to be the pastor of this church. Yeah, I, I love that. Always confirming with God that this is, this is his will, right? Well, this is God's church. And whatever you do, you have to do it in accordance with what you believe to be the will of God. The Bible is our guide, but uh, what you believe to be practically the will of God is the important and the most essential part of any pastorate of a local church or leader of a local church. Nice. And so do uh, individuals in the congregation, are they constantly asking when the announcement will come or, or when is, should that be expected? The uh, committee has a responsibility to keep the congregation up to date. And then at the end of the process or near the end of the process, the congregation will be called together to make their choice known to vote on uh, one of three or one of five, whatever mm -hmm. the number of candidates are, and they'll vote on them. So the congregation is aware, ongoing progress that the committee is making, and then they will be the ones, the congregation, not the committee. Mm. They will be the ones. The committee will make a recommendation, and then the uh, congregation will actually be the ones to decide. And so is it like a formal vote it's process? A formal voting okay. process uh, where the people, all of the members of the church. So currently, while we are searching for pastor, we also are confirming the membership list, who's a member and who's not a member. And once that's confirmed, then those people will be invited to vote. Hmm. And uh, so what uh, classifies somebody as a member of the congregation? Well, one needs to, first of all, to be a member of the congregation, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior, your personal savior, not your family's savior, but your personal hmm. savior. Once you make that a profession of faith publicly known. You at a, an invitation is given every Sunday after the sermon for people to come forward who want to be a part of the congregation. They publicly announce that they believe in Jesus, and if they have not already been baptized and a member of a previous church, then they need to be baptized. We'll get them baptized, and once they're baptized and fellowshiped meaning that the congregation welcomes them, then they are an official member of the church. Yes. And that baptism, is that specifically in a Baptist congregation that uh, they've previously had? It's not necessarily a Baptist uh, church baptism, but it is a traditional biblical congregation, a congregation that believes that the Bible is God's only word mm -hmm. and that that word then becomes the guide for people to be baptized officially. 
So I would imagine in this community, you get many former Latter-day Saints that maybe come and join. That would require a baptism they, at that point. They, they're required to be baptized because they have not been baptized in the traditional biblical sense. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm curious about that. You know, obviously this, this podcast, we typically, you know, myself being a Latter-day Saint, I typically talk in the context of being a leader in the Latter-day Saint Church. So when you came to... When you came to Utah, what uh, did you know much about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or what, what was that experience like becoming more familiar with this community and that, that religion? Aside from uh, my exposure to a few Latter-day Saints during my military days, I knew little or nothing about the Latter-day Saints' beliefs and their religious practices. So I came here and became a member of of this congregation, the Calvary Baptist Congregation, because I was already a member of a Baptist congregation previously. I became a member here and then discovered that uh, it's important if you're going to survive in this community is that you work together with people of different beliefs, agree to disagree on those different beliefs, yeah. and then work together on those areas that we have in common. Yeah. And so what has it generally been a positive experience? I mean, not that, I mean, has it been uh, difficult at times or how would you respond? In the beginning of the early days, uh, we were heckled uh, by members of the LDS community. Uh, We were uh, ignored Mm. because as African-Americans, largely, we were considered to be cursed. And so it was difficult in that sense. More recently, and since that change has occurred, it's become a bit easier to agree to disagree and to work together toward the same goals in housing issues, in homeless issues, and so forth and so on. Yeah. So there's there's always uh, opportunities to, to come together and, and focus on those things. Any other projects or efforts that... That you well, work as we, an interfaith uh, effort? We provide housing for the elderly, low income, for the physically handicapped, low income. Uh, we've helped the veterans. We work with the LDS church community to provide housing for homeless veterans. We provide food for people who are hungry. We help people in the emergency needs, basic needs food, shelter, transportation, clothing, those sorts of things. And it's uh, easy to work together. We've participated and been in the discussion with the city about the housing of the homeless, for example, and the recent move to build multiple shelters as opposed to having one. So we've been uh, a part of this community, always trying to help everybody to have an opportunity to be all they can be. Yeah. We also do educational sorts of things. So we try to train, provide scholarships uh, for kids who want to go to college and help uh, kids who are in grade school to get in the best schools, whether they be private or public. Yeah. So, and typically, are you working with uh, like local bishops or you work directly with uh, some of the general authorities of the church? Or? We work primarily with the general authorities. I I know the president of the LDS church and I know some of the other general authorities. So it's not so much the local bishops. In fact, we believe that the word has not gotten 
to many of the local communities mm. that the hierarchy, the people at the top, wish that they could get. Yeah. So, uh, what would you say to, as far as like, especially in the local Utah Latter Day Saint community? I'm, you know, myself, I'm a former bishop in South Salt Lake, and and sometimes it's easy with that. There's such a culture of the Latter Day Saint Church. Sometimes we miss opportunities to work with with churches like you. What what encouragement or advice would you give for a LDS bishop in the Salt Lake area to better understand your congregation and and your efforts of what you want to accomplish? Well, I think the first thing is uh, that. Uh, all of the people in this community, whether they are part of the dominant religion or otherwise, need to realize that there are other people who are different than they are, different in terms of their beliefs, different in terms of their practice and their behavior, difference in terms of their looks and so forth and so on, and then start to appreciate those kind of differences, celebrate the language that people who are Spanish-speaking or Congolese or Sudanese uh, speak, appreciate those languages and celebrate those sorts of things in the religious setting. And I think the religious leaders have to take the leadership, bending over backwards, and those who are in the dominant group have to realize that they have a bully kind of pulpit that they can use and that they have to use it wisely. Yeah, because they're they're, they're such dominant. Because they presence. are so dominant. If you were in Texas, I mean, it would be a different group that would be dominating. Or if you were in New York, it's a different group yeah. that's dominating. If you are overseas in some place, it's the Catholic versus the Protestant. Yeah. And so whoever is dominating, whoever is the larger group, has to then make the effort to include the people who are not a part of the dominant. Yeah. So what are some ways that maybe local bishop or local leaders could include congregations like yours more effectively? Well, we are doing a number of projects in the community, as I mentioned, feeding the hungry, uh, providing scholarships, providing housing, helping uh, people who need to be able to get those needs met. Those are things that all of us believe are important, and we could come alongside of each other. The dominant religious groups, people could say, we'll help. They may have more resources than do a local congregation would have. And uh, because this is the headquarters, they can certainly make some policy decisions. The uh, dominant religious group could come alongside of us in issues like, uh, for example, the expansion of Medicaid. Medicaid's expansion is so critical for so many people who are not a part of the dominant religious group, and some who are. But uh, that would be a project that we could work together on. Hmm. So, and what would the first step of that look like? I mean, is it helpful? Are, do you get very many, like uh, maybe uh, LDS bishops that come to your services and just say hello and, and connect that way? Or? Well, that would be one possibility mm -hmm. would be to get to know each other yeah, and to find out what the differences are and how we can, what we have in common that we can work on. And so we do have people from the LDS church who come regularly. Every Sunday, there's somebody here who is from that community, but they are coming primarily to learn, not to participate. Mm 
But then after they learn, then it's important that they learn, they start to participate as well Yeah. in some of the things that we have that yeah. we're working on. So what would you say, I imagine from time to time you interact with uh, pastors from other congregations outside of this area, you know, Baptist pastors, what advantage do you feel like you have being a pastor in this area in, in such a dominant LDS community? Are there any, any uh, benefits that way? Well, I hadn't thought about benefits. Uh, I think about the negatives more than I do the benefits, but there are, would be some benefits too. This is a religious state, so to speak. Hmm. And so uh, getting things done through the government, much easier here than they would be, say, in California. Hmm. Uh, getting permission to build a church building, to do a project that is a church-run project, Hmm. And this community would be much easier done by a church group here than would say in Atlanta, Georgia, where the the dominance is otherwise. On the other hand, there are also some negatives. Yeah, and the negatives include being ignored, being uh, undervalued, or having little uh, regard or respect from the dominant religious group by the uh, non-dominant group. So those would be some disadvantages. Yeah. And speaking of more of in a general sense rather than with leaders, like do you feel ignored like when there are certain activities that happen that maybe they don't include you in or, or what does that look like so we can better, you know, pinpoint and recognize those? Well, one of the uh, tremendous things that happens on holidays, for example, in this community is that there are flags placed out in front of people's houses oh, yeah. on uh, those particular holidays. Well, you can tell who's a member of the local uh, ward mm. and who's not primarily by just the watching of those flags go up. So it's those sorts of little things, yeah. I guess you'd consider them, that uh, create then the problem. Yeah, uh, Our kids cannot go to the after-school programs uh, that are held by the LDS Church in the seminary buildings uh, around the schools hmm. because we don't have enough of them. The East High, at West High School, for example, we don't have enough Baptist kids who are there to have a seminary-type program or right. an educational kind of program. So, And the same is true with the universities. If you go to any university in the state of Utah, all around the university are these buildings that are owned and built and run by the LDS Church. What happens to those students who are not a part of those groups at yeah. the times that those students go to those places? Yeah. So it's uh, there are a lot of different possibilities that you could start to look at, make some changes in. And see if maybe we could uh, make a difference. Yeah. So it sounds like, like for example, a, a local high school that has a seminary building or a college with the institute building, just maybe if that institute's having an, an after-school activity or something, it's not that you necessarily expect an invitation into the into the theological meetings, but as their social events and things, just making sure that everybody's aware rather than just those that attend. Well, make sure that everybody's aware of whatever is going on, whether it's a social or an in an active kind of event, and ensure that people are not going to be put upon, proselytized. Oh, right, yeah. 
in the process. Yeah. Uh, we don't want people who are Baptists going to a seminary program that is a proselyting effort right. or proselyting as a When there's a hidden agenda, right? Hidden agenda that's there. And so we have to find a way to work together, agreeing to disagree, but then focusing on the things that we have in common. Yeah, that's really helpful because especially, you know, in our tradition where, you know, the missionary program so emphasized that we sometimes uh, glamorize this interaction where we can, you know, quote unquote, preach the gospel to somebody else. But then that that then becomes the focus and we miss the the simple uh, opportunity of just relating with somebody and being their neighbor and friend, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's what we've got to find a way to do is get to know people who are different, who believe different, who behave different. Get to know them, get to know what those differences are and to appreciate those differences and then work together on the things that we have in common but appreciate and celebrate the differences that exist. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, I mean, every seminary, high school seminary has a seminary council. And I just think what a wonderful opportunity for them to come together and say, okay, how can we reach out to our Baptists, our Muslim, our, you know, Catholic communities that surround us that we go to school with and include them more in a way that isn't, doesn't have a hidden agenda. Right? I mean, what would be the issue with inviting a Baptist pastor to come and do a, class. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be interesting. Uh, I mean, wouldn't that make a difference for the people who are Baptists? Yeah. And it would be an, an, an eye-opener, perhaps, for those who are not. Yeah, like a guest lecture afternoon or whatever, yeah. That and then inviting those those in your congregation to come and, and sure. listen as well. Sure. Man, that would be... And then, uh, you, you know, one of the things that we do here uh, regularly at this congregation is we have guest churches who come because they want to see how we worship and what the difference is between the worship that we practice and that that they're practicing. Some of them are interested in copying what we do, but you go away with a different appreciation for people once you learn more about them. Yeah. You know, I had the opportunity, uh, I believe it was two two Sundays ago, to come and, and uh, attend here with you. And it was, I, I remember later that day, I was at my own LDS ward and it it made both experiences really magnified my my connection with God that day because I saw some things in a different way. You know, sure, it was great. Sure, it's uplifting. Sure. And I think those differences are what we ignore. We like to talk about what we have in common, but we ignore the differences. And the differences are as important as are the commonalities. Yeah. And sometimes the highlight of the differences, not necessarily, you know, argue or to say which one's right, which one's wrong, but just to highlight it and, and appreciate the difference. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, some years ago here in this community, we talked about an English-only law, for example. Well, if you do an English-only law and 80% of the students in the Salt Lake City School District's first language is not English, then what are you saying to those students? Hmm. You're telling them that their first language is not germane to what they are supposed to be learning and doing. Well, the same is true from a religious point of view. We have to realize that the differences does not make one less than, but simply that they're different. Yeah. And what a great way to unify a community by highlighting those, right? Absolutely. That's fantastic. Really, really helpful. Any other positive negatives as far as in the community that would be worth uh, pointing out and, and discovering ways that we could 
improve those or anything well, in mind? Uh, the uh, legislative process in the state of Utah is also dominated by the group that dominates the communities. Yeah. And so we've got to find ways to get some bills introduced and promoted and passed that uh, will uh, not just be for the good of the dominant group, but for all of the people of Utah. Yeah. A majority of our politicians or politicians that come from, by virtue of who they are, come from that particular area. So we've got to diversify. Diversity is good for everybody. And the more we diversify, the better all of us become as human beings. And we learn again to, first of all, appreciate the differences and to celebrate those. Yeah, for sure. And, and I just thinking on that legislative process, sometimes you can, especially being in the LDS church, it can be, it's not just being in the church, but you're also in the dominant culture, right? right. And so you hear these, you know, headlines or, you know, legislation coming down that that you, it's easy to sort of fall into one opinion or perspective. And so it could be really helpful to call it, you know, Pastor Davis and say, hey, how are you seeing this? What am I missing here? Right. Absolutely. I mean, that would be a great way to engage the whole community. I mean, the Episcopal bishop, the Catholic bishop, uh, the pastors of local churches having a view and opinion about what's happening and what the laws are. Mm. And so why not get their input as well? Yeah. That's helpful. Really helpful. Uh, so I want to shift a little bit into the the leadership realm. Obviously, you'll have a, a new pastor here, and I'm I'm guessing uh, that pastor will have a few questions for you before he he takes over the reins. So, you know, as as you're familiar with the lay ministry in the church, where you know I was called as as a bishop at uh, 28 years old, uh, had a marketing degree, not much perspective or understanding, and so I was always just hungry for perspectives on leadership, how to how to motivate people, how to create an environment where people want to worship in, and so forth. So. What are some principles that come to mind as far as leadership of leading a congregation that you've relied on over the last 45 years? Well, some of the principles that have been important for us is that, first of all, our leaders are formally trained as well Mm -hmm. as on-the-job training. So we go to school and we learn the principles of leadership. Uh, One of the principles of leadership is that everybody has an, an opinion. Everybody has something to say. And... What everybody has to say is, is is valuable in some sense. And so you have to learn to listen to everybody in order to be an effective leader. Secondly, in order to be an effective leader, uh, we practice that you have to also first be a good follower yourself. Uh, be willing to follow and let others lead you. So listen to others, uh, be a good follower. The third thing is be willing to sacrifice your selfish wishes for the benefit of the total community. Dress in a way that's uh, appropriate. Speak in terms that are understood and understandable by people everywhere and be able to communicate effectively. So, and then uh, lastly, I would simply say that a good leader must have a vision for how to bring about what they are trying to do in the local community. I love that. So I want to go back to as far as that first part of, of listening, especially when there's so many opinions involved. Do you do you find is that the dynamic exists? I imagine it does where 
if you sort of allude to your opinion of where you want things to go, everybody just sort of defaults because they don't want to necessarily disagree with the pastor. That's that's a risk that is easily uh, you can easily run. Is the leader says this is what I prefer or this is what I would like, and everybody kind of defaults to that. Uh, that ought not be. Uh, the style of leadership, however, the leader ought to listen first mm. to what others have to say and then craft uh, the leader's uh, perspective uh, so that you, the whole group can then move forward. Yeah. And then everybody feels listened everybody to, right? Everybody feels listened to. So do you, are you quite intention, uh, intentional about making sure that you don't uh, share your opinion too soon in, in meetings or whatever it is? Uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, most of the time, I try to listen Ask the people what do they think about and how do they see and then uh, from there, uh, then shape the uh, views that the congregation is going to take. Yeah, that's right. Really helpful. Um, and then being being a good follower, uh, does what, what does that look like day to day? Well, being week to a week? good follower is that uh, every pastor needs a pastor. Hmm. Every pastor needs a pastor. And so you have to have somebody that you look up to that you respect and regard and in a given setting one is a leader in a different setting one is a follower and so you have to in a Sunday school class a pastor is a student uh, whereas the pastor is in charge of the whole congregation which includes the Sunday school so in one setting you are a pastor you are a leader in another setting you are a follower and you have to be able to adjust to both of those roles, function in both, and then get the job done. Yeah. So when you say uh, every pastor needs a pastor, is there is that like a specific individual that you call or that you refer to? You or? need somebody that you can talk to that uh, will listen to you, uh, will hear what you have to say. And so, yes, in my case, I've got a specific pastor that I refer to. Dr. L.K. Curry, whose picture is up there on the wall, oh, wow. is yeah. my pastor. And, uh, Does he live local here? Or? He lives in Chicago. Oh, okay. But I can call him on the phone and say, hey, here's what we're dealing with. What do you think? And uh, he'll help me out. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. And then uh, just sacrificing the selfish desires. Uh, does an example or story come to mind where that was maybe difficult for you or, or really helpful? Well, yes. Uh I did uh, interviews with members of the congregation in their homes, elderly people, and asked them what do they think that this congregation needs to do. Many of them said that they thought we needed wheelchair ramp. Hmm. We would live in a different building, and that building had no floors on the ground, so they, they thought that it would be easier if they could just walk straight in instead of climbing stairs or going downstairs. Well, uh, I decided that maybe that was what I ought to do and brought it to the congregation, and the congregation rebelled. Oh, really? They didn't like the idea? They, they didn't like the idea, and they shot back at me and said, uh, but we only have one or two handicapped people who could who would need a wheelchair ramp. So... Then I learned from there, though, that the next time what I ought to do is go and say to the people, what do you think we need? And say it not only to the people who are directly affected, but to those who are indirectly affected. Now everybody believes that that's the way you ought to go. Yeah. So is that how you resolved it, that specific situation? I dismissed the meeting. 
I went back and talked to more people and got it resolved. Yeah. I love that. And that's maybe, um, I don't want to speak too in too much in generalities, but uh, maybe a dynamic that doesn't exist more as far as the LDS bishop going to eat different people in their congregation, asking them, so what do you think this ward needs? You know, how can we, how can we approve it? And that to me is where a lot of inspiration is stimulated from, from those interactions. Well, if people have a buy-in to whatever you're trying to achieve, then they are more likely to support the effort. But if they don't feel like they've had anything to do with the idea or the suggestion or anything, then they are not likely to give a whole lot of support. Yeah. And I would imagine, I mean, I've seen that happen where they sort of disengage from that experience because the pastor is going to make the decision anyways, right? Yeah. That's that's not a good place to, to worship for sure. And then I love this emphasis on vision. So how, how have you gone about developing a vision or what does that look about and does it look like and does it change often or? Well, visions are always in the pro- in process, always in process. And so one has to know, first of all, what's happening here locally, what's happening at the local congregation, at the local group. And then you also have to know what others, similar bodies are doing and then be able to say, 10 years from now, here's five years from now, whatever number of years from now, here's mm-hmm. where we ought to be. And in order for us to get there, then we have to start now by doing this, 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 and this. And that's the vision. It is constantly changing. Yeah. And is there anything you do to help the members of your congregation continue to be made aware of the vision? Well, absolutely. We start to inform them. Uh, we sing about it. We talk about it. Uh, we hang signs over the building that talk about in one or two few words what the vision is, and we let those uh, hang silently. But people are exposed to them as they come in the door. They expose them as they walk down the hall. When they hear a person talking, all of the leaders are talking about the same vision. Yeah. Wow, that's and that's powerful. That's one thing. It's easy sometimes to miss as you know, a lay leader in the LDS churches that you know you're you sort of jump in. And it's easy to get lost in the administration, making sure the doors are unlocked, the lights are on, and the the service is going to happen. And it's easy to forget well, about the mission. That's one facet of being a leader is that you got to make sure that you got facility and you got adequate uh, comfort and lights and so forth and so on. But in addition to that, you also have to be able to cast a vision. Yeah, that's powerful. That leadership only begins with turning on the lights, right, and make sure the the heat's on. And yeah. <laughs> so, well, this has been a really insightful. And I'm just curious, a few as we wrap up here, um, just a few administrative things. You know, I know in my experience of being a, a LDS bishop that individuals would come to me, you know, in in a state of repentance and wanting to confess. Is that something that, that you encourage and do in your role? Well, we encourage people to confess, but we encourage them to confess in a different way. We encourage them to go to the person that they have an issue with. Yeah. Matthew chapter 18 says that you first go to the person one-on-one, and then you take somebody else with you, and then you take it to the church. Hmm. So the church is the third level of confession that ought to occur. We also believe that confession ought to be between you and God, that it's a personal relationship Mm -hmm. that's more important than any kind of group or massive kind of relationship. So 
administratively, if somebody comes to me, then I will suggest to them that they go talk to the person that they are talking about or that they bring that person and that the three of us then talk about it. And if it's not a person, if it's a personal issue, like vaping now, for example, is an issue in our community, then I recommend that they uh, deal with them and God deal mm. with that issue. Yeah, because there's not necessarily any specific standard that says no standard, yay or nay on that. Right. No yeah. biblical standard that says yay or nay on that. Right, right. And so I would imagine if somebody's looking for counsel or they can set up an appointment with you and meet yes. at any time, is that? Yes, I I do spiritual counseling and then we have other more secular counselors, social workers and so forth. And so they can set up an appointment for any of that. If they're having a spiritual issue, they would put the appointment with me. If it's a financial issue, then they may talk to a social worker or if it's an anger issue or whatever, yeah. or a legal issue. Gotcha. So I would imagine you have people come in and they may express maybe just a uh, moment of they're maybe losing their faith or they're lost a job and I'm, they don't. And I'm the one that they talk to, either me or one of my assistant pastors. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure there's a, you spend a good amount of time with them and uh, use the scriptures, I would, man, I would imagine. <laughs> the scripture is our guide. The Bible is our guide. And we use the term the Bible as opposed to scriptures. Oh, okay. Because it means uh, it refers to one particular book as opposed to other kinds of scriptures. Gotcha. So we use that as our guide, and then we try to relate it by talking about our experiences, what's been my experience. I'm married. Uh, how long have I been married and how have I managed to stay uh, married? Yeah. That's great. So, and then uh, another thing I dealt with as a LDS bishop is, you know, welfare requests. You know, somebody, how, how does that process work? Do they come to you directly or if someone needs you know, help with rent? We have a committee that's responsible for dealing with that. They're called a benevolence committee and they will take requests. People write out their requests and they say, I need help with my rent or my utilities or whatever. And, they, on, and on the request, they also have to be able to say that next month, here's how I plan to deal with this particular issue so that it's yeah. not a month after month after month. Yeah, there's like an end goal and an end date in, in place. Yeah, that's always uh, sage advice there. So, and then with, uh, and that, what the money and the budget you use to help people with those things, does that come from just the your congregation all of, alone? Yeah, all of the money and the budget of our churches come from the congregation and or friends of the congregation. Mm -hmm. And it's a free will gift that people give. And then that money is, and they can either designate what they want it used for to help somebody who's in need or... They can say it goes in the general fund and the church can decide what the priorities are. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Anything else as far as your day-to-day -day administrative duties that uh, maybe a Latter-day Saint leader uh, wouldn't guess you do? Well, one of the things about a pastor of a church is that a pastor is full-time pastor. He's not a many of them are not part-time. And so they spend 60, 70 percent of their time dealing with human people kind of issues yeah. and uh, and counseling and so forth and so on. So I think that that's something that uh, LDS leaders don't necessarily, they don't spend full time every day 
dealing with uh, issues around the people of their congregation. Nice. Very, very helpful. Well, I got one more question for you, but if uh, any anything we're missing or questions I should have asked or uh, obviously we can't... Think of anything. Okay. Good. And I would imagine if people do want to maybe worship with you, what's, what's your schedule there? Everybody's invited to come. Everybody's welcome to be a part of the worship service of... Uh, those who would be leaders in the worship, however, must be members of the church. But otherwise, you don't have to be a member. Yeah. And we have multiple services every week. We have on Sunday, we have an 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock and a 2 o'clock specialized language service for people who are from the Congo and uh, Sudan. And then 7 p.m. on first Sunday night, we have service. Hmm. And then Monday through Friday, we have small group uh, meetings, and everybody's invited to come to those, too. Awesome. Well, the last question I have for you is, uh, as you look back, now you're uh, close to retirement, which will happen at the end, end of the year. Uh, after 45 years of, of leading this congregation, how has that made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm hoping that what uh, it has said to me is that I need to when people approach me about whatever the issues are that I need to be able to say, talk to our pastor or talk to our church leadership about that. If it's a leadership, if I can help them individually, then I ought to do that personally. But then if it's a large issue, then I need to be able to refer them to the leadership of the congregation. And that I've learned. Now, unfortunately, many people try to solve problems and they make them worse instead of solving them. And so my hope is that I will be prepared to say that's not a problem for me. That's a problem larger than me. And that example comes from the book of Exodus where Moses was leading the children of Israel and doing it all himself. Yeah. And his father-in-law said to them, you're going to kill yourself. And the people, where the people out. And Moses then picked other leaders who reported to Moses. And then Moses was the one who reported to God. That concludes my interview with Reverend Franz Davis. A big thank you from the Latter-day Saint community to him. I don't know if I has to have any uh, right to stand and represent that community. But nonetheless, as a former uh, Latter-day Saint Bishop, I, I thank the Reverend Davis uh, for for his hard work, the many years where he has lifted our community up and uh, preached the, the good word of Christ and of the gospel that every human should know, especially in the Salt Lake City Valley. Now, obviously, we'll be focusing primarily on Latter-day Saint leaders, but what other leader outside of our church should I consider uh, reaching out to and interviewing? I do have the uh, Catholic bishop of the main cathedral of Madeline, I believe that's the name of it, that, that I hope to reach out to, connect with, and uh, hear what it's like being a Catholic bishop here in a very Latter-day Saint bishop-heavy uh, area. But, uh, you know, we won't do these too often, but I think it's fun to, and we can learn a lot by just reaching outside and asking people how they lead in a slightly different religious context. And don't forget, visit leadingsaints.org slash tour to be one of the final 35 people to join us on the 2020 Church History Tour. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought 
forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.